Amen. Thank you for that ministry and music. I invite you to turn open your Bibles once again to our passage that we read all, already this morning. And I trust many of you have heard the phrase carpe diem. Carpe diem. It's a Latin phrase that was first used by the Roman poet Horace, who actually was born 50 years before Christ was born. And the phrase means seize the day, as I'm sure many of you know. I, I saw a, a fun t-shirt on sale that had a parody of that. It said carpe diem. It had a picture of a, uh, a bird carrying a fish. It said seize the carp. So I kind of like that one a bit too, but I don't think that's what it really means. Seize the day. In a secular sense, the idea behind it is usually live for today because there's no guarantee of tomorrow. However, however, just because the phrase is of secular origin doesn't mean that it's altogether contrary to Scripture. For, in fact, there are several passages in the Bible that encourage us to seize the day. Colossians 4.5 tells us to make the most of every opportunity. You might think of Mark 13.33, which says, Be on guard, be alert, for you do not know when that time will come. And then here in Hebrews 10, we have a similar message laid out for us, a kind of Christian carpe diem, if you will. You see, the world takes carpe diem to mean seize the day in that for this world, this day, that's all there is. They would say that once you die, there is no afterlife, so make the most of today. Because once you're dead, there won't be anything else. And actually, if we were to go back to Horace's original poem where the phrase was first used... Uh, carpe diem doesn't exist just by itself, but is part of a larger Latin phrase, which I won't attempt to butcher for you this morning. Just give you the English. It says, seize the day, putting as little trust in, as possible in the future. However, that's not our perspective, of course, nor is, is it the Bible's perspective. In fact, the Bible would say quite the opposite, that we are to put our ultimate hope in the future, in the return of Christ and in God's promises for the end of time. So in the end, knowing that God will one day bring this world to a place of fulfillment helps us to inform us how we are to live. And in the passage before us, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, we will be told to seize the day, not in the sense of let us eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die, but rather let us draw near to God and to one another for Christ is coming soon. Let us... Draw near to God and to one another, for Christ is coming soon. A key phrase, I think, is found in verse 25. If you have it open, you can look down there, the last part of that verse. And it says, essentially, let us do all these things that was just described, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The basic idea is that our time is short. And while we are not saved by our works, one day we will have to stand before God and account for how we have lived for him. And basically that translates to how well we have loved him and loved others. If you want to boil down essentially all of our spiritual life, we're going to be judged on how well we have loved God and loved others. Again, not saved by those things. We cannot fully earn God's favor by that standard of measurement. We would all fall short. Jesus Christ has paid our debt and has made us right in God's eyes. But yet we will still have to account for how we have done these things. And so since our time is short, the author of Hebrews gives us three commands, three exhortations as to how we should live in the meantime, how we should seize the day. 
Well, if God is giving us instructions as to how we can make our limited time worthwhile, then we should pay attention to what he says. The question then becomes, what is he commanding us to do? How should we seize the day? How would he have us to live out the remaining days that we have before us? And uh, if we look in Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, I think these three commands are easy to find. Uh, If you have an NAS Bible, it's even easier. The commands are marked by the words, let us, let us. Okay, so we have a spiritual salad before us. Let us, lots of lettuce. Okay, Uh, I already used that joke in a previous sermon. It wasn't funny then, I guess it's not now. Um, So we'll move on. Okay, three let us phrases. Look at verse 22, you see the first. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. That's one. Verse 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. That's two. And verse 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So those are the three things that God would have us devote our time to in light of the truth that the day is coming, where Christ is coming back. Everything in this passage supports one of those three commands. And so that forms a very easy outline for us this morning. Let's explore what they mean. And we'll go through each of these. Uh, Number one is let us draw near. Our first exhortation, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Draw near to who? To God. How do we know that? Because of the verses that precede it. So let's read verses 19 through 22 together. It says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25 immediately follows a larger argument that the author was making about how Christ's one-time sacrifice accomplished what the sacrificial system could not, that is, to take away our sins. And so to fully appreciate what the author is saying here, we should really go back to the beginning of Hebrews 10, starting in verse 1. So hopefully it's not far from you. Just go into Hebrews 10, start in verse 1, and we will just read a few of these verses to get the summary of what was being talked about. See, this is a difficulty. When you're starting in the middle of an argument, you have to kind of go back and explain a little bit. Since I'm not doing a series, we'll try and just summarize that uh, pretty quickly. Verse 1, it says, For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things that are to come, and not the very form of things, could never by the same sacrifices which were made off, uh, were offered continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Okay, stop there. So here the author is talking about the Old Testament sacrificial system. If you're not sure where we are, what we're talking about, that's where he's at. He's thinking back to the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy at the time of Moses. And back then God set up a system uh, for dealing with mankind's sin. Uh, He laid out in the law of Moses all the things that God considers sin. And not just those. We find through Jesus' teaching that it extends beyond just the external, but even into matters of the heart. But a lot of things were listed out that were viewed to be sin. And God set up a system to deal with that sin. It was the sacrificial system. And people might look back in the Old Testament and say, why were all these animals sacrificed? Uh, It's such a strange way of doing things. Well, the reason was because God required a penalty for every sin that was committed. And so the sacrificial system was a way of blood being spilled, blood being paid for sins that were committed without having his people actually have to die for the sins that they committed. Hebrews 10.4 
says that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's the problem, though. So God set up the system, and every year sacrifices would be made, but there was a problem. This didn't come to an end. It had to continually be, be done. The Day of Atonement continued to come year after year after year. And for as many times as people sinned, more sacrifices had to be offered. So the, off, the author of Hebrews presents this problem, that even though God set up the system to, to, um, to pay for sin, God never intended it to be the perfect solution because it was only meant to illustrate that our sins are continually before God and that there continually needs to be a price that is paid. However, it says in that verse we just read, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins because they continually had to be offered year after year. They may have satisfied one sin or a few, but they can never permanently take away the sin, which begs the question, then how would God solve this ultimate dilemma? And the answer is in Christ. Christ came into the world and he perfectly fulfilled the will of God. We see that in Hebrews 10:7. I came to do the will of God, it says. And because he lived a sinless life, Jesus, as the perfect priest, offered his own body on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. So verse 14 says, So by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. The result is that we're totally forgiven by God. Verse 17 says, Their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. We do not need to fear God anymore. We have been forgiven. We do not need a priest to go between God and ourselves. We are at peace. And so that, all of that argument is where we get the therefore that comes in in verse 19, the start of our passage today. It says, therefore, since Christ has taken away our sins by this all-time sacrifice, we can now draw near to God as we're being compared, uh, commanded to. Verse 19 and 20, again, say, therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near. What's incredible, I think, about this command is just how stark of a contrast there is between what God's people were told in the Old Testament and now what we're being commanded here. For if you remember anything about uh, the, the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy, as we already talked about, if you've been uh, at least attempting to read your Bible through in a year, maybe perhaps you at least got that far, hopefully. Okay, and you've been through that for a while now. Um, during that time, when God spoke to his people through a prophet like Moses or spoke to them on the mountain, what do you know about that, that encounter? The, the, the people weren't allowed to come anywhere close to God. If they even went up to the side of the mountain, they could be killed. Uh, Exodus 19 through uh, 12 through 23 says this. And the reason was because God is holy. It was an illustration of God's holiness that we are so imperfect, so sinful, so dead in our sins. If you're in my uh, Sunday school class, we talked about that a little bit this morning. So dead in our transgressions that we are so far separated from God that we're not even able to approach Him. And they weren't allowed to. Um, and then there was a system that was set up to, to be able to make atonement for sins through the sacrificial system. And there was the tabernacle, which later became the temple in the times of the kings. But even then, who was allowed to enter it? Not just anybody. Only the priests. And then there was a, a most holy place. 
um, that was in the middle of it. So think of a ta- um, I'm just curious. Who, who has been to the tabernacle in, uh, on Route 30? You know what I mean? In Lancaster? Raise your hand if you see. Okay, a good number of you. That's good. So you've seen it. I wish we could all just get up out of our seat. If it was like down the road, just walk and, and see it. It would be really a helpful uh, you know, visual illustration for us this morning. But if you know anything about that, if you've been there, or if you've seen pictures in your study Bible or whatever, you know that there was this rectangular-shaped tent uh, area that was where God's holy, holy place and the most holy place you know, being inside of that. And, and even there, okay, the high priest was allowed to enter, but only at a certain time of year. And he had to be wearing a certain thing and had to, to offer this sort, sort, uh, sort of sacrifice before entering. And then after he left, he had to wash himself and do all these things. You can read all about it in, in, in the Pentateuch. But the point being that God was not somebody you just approach um, whenever you feel like it. Not somebody that, any, you know, that, that God's people could just walk right up to. And so the, the amazing thing is that now we are being commanded as Christians to draw near to God. The exact opposite of what the Israelites were told back in that time. And, and I think that's, that's amazing. How can we do that when others couldn't? What's the difference? How, how are we being commanded one thing when they were commanded another? I think the answer is because Christ has broken down the barrier between us and God. And that's why I think the temple curtain was torn in two when Christ died on the cross. You know, if you've seen The Passion of the Christ, it's an amazing movie. I think it really helps illustrate just the kind of suffering that Christ went through. It can be a really emotional, powerful, a touching thing to see. But one thing I wish they would have included was the tearing of the temple veil. Um, I think they have somewhat of an earthquake happening and uh, you see a little bit of that, but you don't see the tearing of the curtain. And that illustrates, it's a picture of what's happened through Christ's death on the cross, that we are able to walk into God's presence. We can talk to him. We can approach him whenever we like. And that was something that was not true before. And so it's a blessing we often miss because we weren't born during that time. We never experienced the sacrificial system ourselves. We're 21st century Christians, way separated from that time, that place but it's an amazing privilege, one that we shouldn't take lightly. So we are being encouraged to draw near to God. How are we to do this? Well, let's look in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 to see how it's illustrated. And we'll, we'll see a lot of verses in Hebrews. Hebrews is pretty self-contained in this topic, which is really nice, helps illustrate itself. But if you look at Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, it illustrates what it means to draw near to God. Verses 15 and 16 of chapter 4 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Here's the key part. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So here it defines a little further. We're not just drawing near to God, but we're nearing, uh, drawing near to the throne of grace. How amazing is that? Again, this is just a conceptual thing. You might not say something that's directly applicational, just more of something to reflect on. But I think it's a great thought. Have you ever considered that we are being invited into the throne room of God to be able to come to his throne room and, and ask whatever we, we wish of him? And, 
And it's an amazing thing, especially if we've been studying Esther in the past few months. As I've been kind of doing this series on Esther, you think of just the permission that she needed to be able to enter the king's presence and ask one simple request of him. If you remember from that book, if somebody walked into his throne room without being invited, they could be killed on the spot. And that was one of the reasons she was so nervous about coming to the king and asking for her people to be spared. She wasn't sure if she was taking her life into her hands. And that's the way it was with with kings at the time. Here, we are being invited to come into God's throne room. That is amazing. It means we have access to be able to just come and, and ask. And I think that translates into prayer. What does that mean for you and I? That we can pray to God whenever we feel like. You know, I'm not a a priest up here for you this morning. I'm, I'm called pastor, but not priest. And I think that's intentional. And in that you don't have to go between, you know, to me to talk to God. I'm not that, that, that's not my role. And that's not Pastor Heller's role or Pastor Reed's role. We are not priests. We don't need a priest to go to God. You can go to God directly. You can pray to God directly. You can pour out your heart before Him. You can praise Him directly. There's no need of a sacrificial system anymore because Christ has paved the way for you, broken down that wall, torn the veil, all those things. Another implication, though, I think of drawing near is, is in intimacy. So it's not just that we're going before a king in an impersonal sense. You know, you think if you were to, to come into a king's throne room and the throne was right over here and you came and bowed before him, you might not know the king. You might just be asking something humbly and walking away, not really with any kind of relationship. But when we say draw near, I, I often think of, of the image of a parent and child. And, and I got to tell you, one of the great blessings of being a parent is I, I just love when I have a chance to read to my kids. When, when I can read to Amy and Caleb and when they want to draw near and I can kind of put my arm around them and read whatever book they bring and, and put on my lap. That, I mean, I don't know about you if you're a parent. I mean, that's just one of, one of my favorite things. And, and so I think of drawing near in this, this light, not just that we have to come before God in fear, but we can draw near to him as, as you might picture drawing near to your father or mother as a child. It's very neat, very neat. And, and we know from Galatians 3.26 that we are all God's children, in a sense. We're adopted sons and daughters. It says, you are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's pretty neat, that we can come to God as a, as a child would come to a father or, or to a, a mother. So often I think that we don't draw near to God. And that's, that's what's challenging about this exhortation. So, okay, getting back to the main point, we are, we are being told to seize the day because Christ is coming soon. The day is approaching. So draw near to God. Why is that important? Because I think we so often don't. So, so do a little bit of self-examination here. How often... During this week, just look at this past week. Okay, what have you faced? What difficulties have you encountered? What joys have you experienced? And have you brought them to God this week? If so, great. I'm not assuming that everybody has failed in that way. In fact, if, if you've done those things, then excellent. Strive to continue to do what you've been doing. And if you look back on this week and you've said, well, there's some things that I've dealt with that I haven't brought to God, then take that opportunity. Again, this is not something that that everybody in all time had access to. The children of Israel had to stand at a distance from Mount Sinai. They feared God. They couldn't draw near. God is giving this open invitation that while you have breath, the, day, the days are short. Come to God with whatever it is that is troubling you, with whatever joys that you have. Draw near to Him. 
He invites you to it. He invites you to do that. Second thing we are in, we're commanded to do. Second exhortation is found in verse 23. In addition to drawing near to God, the author of Hebrews says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. Hold fast to your confession of hope. See, the people who this letter was written to, was, uh, they were being tempted to return to their former ways and practices. They were being tempted to stop believing that God's promises were secure. They were being tempted to walk away from the whole thing. And if I had time, uh, we could get into the rest of chapter 10, uh, where it says uh, in verse 32, you can at least look at verse 32. Remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. He'll say that they were imprisoned. They were even uh, at the point where property was taken away from them because of their faith. Whoever this group of people is that that the author of, of Hebrews is writing to, they apparently went through some difficult stuff. Stuff that you and I probably have never experienced for our testimony in Christ. But they had um, been threatened. They had been perhaps imprisoned. They had been persecuted. They had property taken from them, all because they claimed to be Christians. And it was apparently a difficult situation because a lot of this letter is devoted to telling them, uh, keep at the faith. Don't give it up. Don't uh, abandon the faith that you once put your trust in. And there's this whole section, it's a really difficult section in Hebrews 6, about the dangers of falling away. The author is saying, don't fall away. Do not give up. Um, Hold fast to your confession. Hebrews 11 um, might be more familiar to you. That's the chapter that immediately follows. And you might know that as the section that talks about the heroes of the faith. And, uh, and so maybe you've sat in a, a Bible study on that or Sunday school class or whatever, read that. We know of all the different people who are listed in that chapter. But one thing that's interesting from that chapter is that in verse 13 it says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance. That's an interesting characteristic that might be overlooked as we read through all those names of Hebrews 11. One thing that says that made them all heroes of the faith is that they all died still living in faith, having not received what was promised. That shows that all these individuals persevered in some way. And that perseverance really is a characteristic of a true Christian. That to be a Christian involves perseverance, holding fast, staying true to what you believe. That can be difficult at times. We all know people who have prayed a prayer. People who are friends, people who are family members, who at one time prayed a prayer and, and it seemed asked Jesus to be their Savior who might not be living a life for Christ today. What we learn from the Scriptures is that it's more than just praying a prayer. It's more than just saying, I believe, raising a hand. It's living a life that's consistent and that is enduring. And one of the ways we show ourselves to be true Christians is to endure to the end. And that's said not in a light way, but it it reminds us to pray for individuals. Maybe you know somebody who may have professed faith at one time that you do not see walking with the Lord right now. Pray for them. Remember to pray for them. Because this whole idea of endurance is key and it's difficult. When you see the word endurance, after all, we think of something that's, you know, that's going to be a challenge. 
If somebody says you need to endure something, then whatever it is they're talking about, you know, involves some sort of difficulty or some longevity, like that it's going to take place over a long period of time. And of course, our lives are a, a long period of time, at least from our perspective. I mean, it's a long time to persevere, and so it can be difficult. Everything is not always easy. There's, there's a cool story. I was looking up this idea of perseverance, and I found a really neat story online of, of perseverance. And you might say, okay, online, that, that might be a little sketchy. But you can, you can look this up. This is true. True story. 1983, um, a story of a man named Cliff Young. Okay, and if any of you were ever in track or have kids in track, maybe this will be particularly appealing. 1983, Australia is the setting. And they were hosting a Sydney to Melbourne ultra marathon. Okay, a marathon that ran between these two major cities in Australia. I don't know if this is still being held. I didn't look that far, but it was at the time. The race, can you guess how long that is? 544 miles. Okay, so you've heard of marathons. That is an ultra marathon. I cannot imagine getting two miles uh, without collapsing on the, on the road, okay? If you know anything about my athletic ability, it, it doesn't exist. So 545, that's just incredible. I cannot picture what 544 miles is like. But this is a race that I read. It, it was apparently people had to train for, obviously. If you're running 544 miles, you have to train for months and months and months, if not years, to be able to participate in this thing. And it's a race that I'm told before that year happened, before this new record was set, um, took seven days, a whole week to complete. And basically what the runners would do is run 18 hours a day and then rest for six. They'd sleep for six and then get up and do it all over again and complete it in about a week's time. So there were all these young people competing. And then all of a sudden, this, this fellow showed up. His name was Cliff Young, and he was 61 years old. And people just stared at him. They thought he was there just to watch the race. But he said, no, I'm here to run it. And, and at first people thought he was joking, but he said, no, I'm serious. He got his number and he was all ready to go. So people couldn't believe it, but they thought, well, this guy's not going to make it very far. It's 544 miles. How is he going to even complete it? They started the race and sure enough, you know, the younger guys took off, just took off running and they were well ahead of him. And uh, people were even kind of making fun of his, his run. It wasn't even really a run. They, they said it was more like a shuffle. And so he, had, he was very much behind in the first day. And for a while, people were wondering if this was even a good idea for him, if he was even going to survive trying to run something this long. They were concerned for his health. But as the, the days went on, he started to gain more ground on them. And the way he did it was by going a few days without sleeping. He just continued to run when others were sleeping at night. And what he later said was that as a boy, he was used to chasing after sheep as a shepherd, and he would often run for two days to catch up with some of them without sleeping to bring them back. So he said, I didn't think this race would be a problem. As the days went on, he got closer and closer to the fact that in the end, he won it. This 61-year-old man won this 544-mile race and beat the previous record by two days. Can you imagine? I can't. I cannot picture that, but it's true. Look it up, and you will find this is not an urban legend. Cliff Young was his name. Five days, 15 hours, and four minutes. The man ran 544 miles. Two days quicker than the previous record. That is about the best story of endurance I could find, I think. If you find a better one, tell me. You have to beat it by a few hundred miles, okay? So, in a similar fashion, the, the race of life 
requires endurance. And we're not just talking about five days of our life. I mean, you think of an entire lifetime. Whatever the Lord gives us, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years, however the Lord uh, gives us, how many he, he chooses to grace us with, obviously we're going to come into times that are difficult. Times where we are tempted to give up. Times where we will be like Job, where certain uh, calamities come in, into our life that we didn't ask for or expect, where we just want to give up the race. Maybe you will be like him, encounter something unexpected. Maybe you might encounter opposition in your life at some point. Maybe friends who discourage you with your walk with Christ. Whatever the case, we must never stop trusting in God as our strength, our comfort, our guide, and our master. We must never forsake the gospel that we initially put our trust in. Why? And this is, this is key. Because you ask, so how, how is a person supposed to do this? How could we possibly endure such a long race when such difficulties will inevitably come upon us in forms that we don't expect? Um, the rest of the text says, for he who is promised is faithful. That's the key. That is how we would be able to endure for so long. For he who is promised is faithful. You see, throughout your life, you may be tempted to ask at some point, is all of this worth it? I'm going through so much difficulty. I have experienced so much pain, so much trouble. In the end, is this really worth it? I'm about ready to quit, to give up. It says, he who has promised is faithful. If we were hoping in something that just an ordinary man had promised us, we might doubt if it's ever going to come to pass, if somebody might keep their word. But we're not trusting in the words of man. We're trusting in the words of God. The God who has said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. It's not a guess. We don't have to guess if there's going to be a reward at the end of this life. There is. He has promised. John 3.36. He has promised also in Hebrews 13.5, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. He has said, And God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. For every difficulty there is in this life, God has made a promise to help you through it. And so when we face great difficulty, we should continue to hold on to our faith because we know that He who has promised us is faithful. The promises He has made are not empty. They will be true. We can rely upon them because we can rely upon God's character. One day Christ is going to return. So the idea is don't give up. Seize the day. Keep the faith. Use today to strive to hold on to that faith that you professed so long ago. Continue to press forward. That's our second command. Number three, our third great exhortation. We've already said, let us not only draw near, let us not only hold fast to our confession, but now, verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. This is an important balancing point to the other two. Because it shows that true Christianity is not just an internal matter. The first two commands, you could get the, the, the impression that uh, all of this is internal. That we are to draw near to God. We should hold fast to our confession. All things we can do on our own, one might say. Um, you could almost walk away thinking that you could live out your Christianity in a box. In, in your own room. But here, this third command kind of breaks that notion. And shows that really to be impossible. 
The third command makes it clear that we are to seize the day fully by living for God and by uh, making that spill out to good works, which we uh, spur others to do as well. Matthew 5, Jesus teaches this very thing. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it for you. It says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Ephesians 2.10, Paul tells us, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In Titus chapter 2 and 3, uh, Paul repeatedly comes back to the same theme. Titus 2.7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of what? Good works. Titus 3.14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. So the connection that's being made here by the writer of Hebrews between our relationship with God and good works is consistent with what we see in the rest of the New Testament. question is, how do we do this? How are we meant to spur one another to these good deeds. And once again, the author of Hebrews explains what they mean a little further. He tells us how. Verses 23 and 25, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembly together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So how are we to go about provoking one another to love and good works? Not by neglecting to meet with one another. Not by trying to be lone rangers, as it were. Not by avoiding worship services or fellowship opportunities or service projects together as a body. But just the opposite, by meeting together, by coming together, by making it a priority to be with God's people, to connect with a local community of believers. And this is the point the the writer of Hebrews is trying to make. He's emphasizing the absolute necessity of God's people coming together and spending time with one another because without that, there is no way that we can encourage one another to love and good deeds. It's impossible. You can't stay at home and encourage one another. For as great as technology is today, we can listen to sermons online, we can download podcasts, you can listen to the auto-watch video You can even see what's going on in in the life of a church. You can do a lot um, from, from your own computer nowadays. But you cannot stir one another up to love and good deeds in the same way as being face to face with somebody. With being here, present, physically with one another. I would even go a step further and to say that there has to be more than just the attendance of this service to be able to fulfill this command. Because for the most part, you guys are just listening to me, right? You're just kind of stuck here. You can't go. I guess you could walk out if you wanted to. That, that wouldn't be nice, but I'm glad you didn't, okay? Um, but, you know, this whole, this whole service, I mean, we pray together. Mostly it's us up here leading. And, of course, we're encouraging one another by singing songs to each other. That's, that's biblical. That as we sing these songs, we're not just singing to God, but we are singing to one another, reminding each other of the truths that we are singing. But if you come here and you say, okay, I've I've fulfilled this command to meet together because it says we should meet together. Here I am. We're meeting together and then just bolt out the door. You have not fully fulfilled this this passage because for the most part, we're just facing forward today, right? 
Okay, there's not a whole lot of opportunity to interact. But when the service is over, that's when you have the opportunity to ask how each other is doing, to pray for one another, to, to really be concerned about the person sitting next to you or the person across the aisle or wherever. Coming to, to prayer meeting, praying for one another. Um, if there's a service project that our church is doing, coming together and, and serving one another. Um, being a part of fellowship activities, Sunday school picnic, all these things. Okay. Give us opportunities, not just to um, be physically next to each other and, and think that that's fulfilling it, but interacting with one another, building each other up in the faith, whether that's praying for one another or sharing a word of scripture with one another or encouraging somebody when and somebody's down or rejoicing with them with their joys. If, if you have not taken the time to encourage one another, but yet it's kind of like, in your mind, you know, we come to church and that's it, let's go home. I, I'd encourage you to reevaluate that. Just because that is what this verse is driving at. It also says another uh, point that I want to draw out to you, and that is that the, the idea of ministering to one another does not entirely fall on my hands, or Pastor Heller's hands, or Pastor Reed's, because this is a, a command that is begin, being given to all of us. And... Uh, Pastor Heller visits a, a ton of people. I hope you don't mind me saying this. He visits a, a bunch of people, and I wish I had your memory of being able to remember everybody's name, and you're, you're amazing at that. And Pastor Heller does a great deal of, of, of good and ministering that way. And Pastor Reed as well. And, but we, we can't, as three of us, minister to everybody. The, the church needs you. It needs you to, to minister to the person next to you, to the person you see is hurting. And, and while we, we do our best to catch anything that's going on, any need that's out there, we do not always catch everything. That's why the church needs you to be a part of it, to be a part of this, this, this body that is ministering to each other and encouraging one another and building each other up. So don't just view it as something that that's, that's something the staff does. View it as a personal responsibility as well. That is an exhortation that's being given to you today. The time is short. Build each other up in the faith. You have an opportunity. You know certain details about a person's life that I might not, that Pastor Heller might not, that Pastor Reed might not. And you have an opportunity, if the Lord is speaking to you, to encourage them and to build them up in the faith, to pray for them, to go over and visit them, to maybe bring them a meal if that's what they need, or to just share a word of Scripture with them. That applies to you young people. Teens in youth fellowship, if you're gathered here today, that is not something that you have to wait until you're an adult to do. You have been given spiritual gifts just like everybody else. Children, that's a, it's a responsibility for you as well. If you see a friend that's hurting, if you know of somebody who's going through a difficult time, you can, you can pray for them. And, and I believe our teachers here do a great job of training you up in how to pray. I believe your parents do a great job in training you up in how to pray. Be their friend. Encourage somebody today. It's something we are all commanded to do. The time is short. Brothers and sisters, the time is short. It is now 2012. And these words were written nearly 2,000 years ago. That means Christ is 2,000 years closer to coming back than he was when these words were first written means the day is approaching soon. I cannot tell you when that day will be. Whether it's going to be today, or whether it's going to be in another thousand or two thousand or three thousand years. All I know is that it's sooner. It's sooner now than it was then. 
And our time is short. Even if we don't see it happen in our own lives, our days are limited. So the exhortation is to use the time that you have to draw near to God. If you've been going on your own and not bringing your concerns and your joys to God, don't do it any longer. Come and draw near to Him. We're encouraged to, um, to, to build each other up in the faith. We're encouraged to hold fast to this confession. Do all of these things. Don't wait until tomorrow to do it. Christ may come tomorrow, so seize the day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this exhortation of Scripture, these three commands given to us. To consider the time that we have, Lord, to to draw closer to You, to hold fast when difficulties come into our lives and, and to take every opportunity to minister to each other. God, help us to view these things as our responsibilities, not somebody else's. But God, help us to make the most of this opportunity now that you've given to us. While you have given us breath, Lord, help us to count it as a blessing. And God, may we always draw closer to you and to others. And may we bring glory to your name by doing so. In Jesus' name, amen.